Okay, today we're covering Genesis 4, verses 17 through 26. And uh, before we start, I'm going to ask the Lord's favor on our time of study. Father, we come before you once again asking for uh, your help in understanding this uh, very sobering passage. Uh, Lord, I would ask specifically for your help that it would be clear, that it would be faithful to the word with appropriate application, and that it would be helpful, Lord, for edification of the saints. In Jesus' name, amen. We're continuing on in chapter 4, and Lord willing, we'll reach the end of the chapter. Um, But we're continuing in this theme of two brothers, two religions, two offerings, two outcomes. And where we find ourselves today is two cultures, and they could not be more different from each other. I'm reminded uh, Augustine uh, in his work on the city of God and the city of man. I've not read it. It comes to about 1,100 pages, but it's an epic uh, work. He differentiated between two cities, a city that has God as its focus and a city of man that has man as, as, as its focus. And when we consider two seeds, as we have, Cain, the seed of the serpent, and Abel, and ultimately his successor, Seth, we're talking about the one through whom ultimately the seed of the woman would come and and completely crush the head of the serpent. But they represent two entirely different cultures, two entirely different lineages. And uh, Augustine wrote about that in his uh, book, uh, his epic work, The City of God, The City of Man. He wrote that book, I'm told, literally as Rome was being sacked by the Goths and culture was about to implode. And there was a view that was held that the reason that Rome was suffering was because of Christianity, because of the, their faithfulness to Jesus Christ. And Augustine was writing that, to the contrary, the reason that Rome was had decayed and ultimately would be destroyed was because it was founded on something other than a faithfulness to the God of the Bible. And we find ourselves today looking at at culture at large. And it doesn't take a very insightful observer to see that the cultures around us are not permeated by faithfulness to the God of the Bible. And there's consequences to all of that. And that, that really is the theme of what we're looking at today when we're looking at the lineage of Cain and the bright light at the end of chapter 4, which is Seth coming on as a descendant of Adam and Eve to be the one who would succeed his older brother who had gone home to be with the Lord, Abel. But by way of introduction, as we look at this passage in in Genesis 4, and it's helpful if you open your, your Bible, we won't be covering that large a section, but it's good if you follow along. But Abel had been slain by Cain in cold-blooded murder. The Septuagint actually contains language, and some translations incorporate this, that Cain told his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. That's not in all translations, but there are some uh, text traditions that actually have that language there. But it's obvious regardless of the integrity of whether that language is in the text or not, that Cain had lured his innocent brother 
and taken his life in cold-blooded, premeditated murder. And Cain had been cursed, Genesis 4, 11 through 12, by God himself. Earlier, Satan had been cursed directly. Adam and Eve had implications of the curse associated with them. With Eve, it was pain in childbearing, etc. With Adam, it was difficulty in sowing and reaping the ground, a difficulty in engaging in work, etc. Uh, but neither of them were cursed directly as Satan was. But here we have Cain was literally cursed directly by God. And there were uh, strong implications of that. He was condemned to be a wanderer, a vagabond, a vagrant, depending upon your translation. And, uh, but he was a homeless man. And he said that the sentence that had been imposed on him by God was too severe. You'll find in that response no remorse over the sin of murdering his brother. You'll find in that response no sense of culpability, no sense of guilt before a holy God. All that you'll find there is a lament over the consequences that were associated with the judgment that God had imposed upon him. And God in his mercy said, I will protect you. God said, I will put a mark on you. It's not helpful to try to speculate what that mark was, but there was some differentiating factor that was associated with Cain that would identify him literally as a marked man, whatever that meant. And the one who would assault Cain would be judged seven times. In other words, God was saying, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And it's not in the hand of humanity to judge uh, and take the life of, uh, of Cain. So that's really where we, where we pick it up. And, but then we find in verse 16 and 17 that Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and he settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. In verse 17, Cain had relations with his wife and she gave birth to Enoch. And then there's a series of those who would come uh, after Enoch, you have Enoch and Arad and Mahujalel and Methuselah and ultimately Lamech. And there are four generations that are listed specifically that come from the uh, combination of, um, of Cain and his wife. His wife is not named. And it's not necessarily helpful to try to speculate on exactly where Cain's wife came from, but it would be either uh, his sister or his niece, perhaps, uh, the laws of consanguinity, as we would call them, every civilized culture has this in terms of intermarriage, uh, had not been enacted. And at that point, there was no reason to be concerned about intermarriage. There was no genetic implications of concern. Otherwise, God would have done something about that. So it's not helpful to speculate as to the identity of Cain's wife. She simply named his wife. But they had a child, and the child's name is Enoch. And what we'll find as we look at the lineage of Cain is a remarkable growth in sophistication of civilization. And the question that sometimes comes up is how could a man who is cursed by God directly enjoy the prosperity of a culture that is showing advancement in terms of sophistication? And it showed up in a number of ways. And the answer to that is the common grace of God. Not saving grace, not a redeeming grace, but there is a common grace, at least most Reformed traditions will acknowledge that, 
that would say that God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. And it's, it's a grace because the world in which we live is not as rough as it could be given our alienation from God. It could be and should be and deserves to be a hostile world in which we live, and God in his restraining grace has allowed us to live in some form of civilized humanity that obviously we don't deserve given what a civilization has done with respect to obeying God and disobeying God specifically, but it's common grace. There are some reform traditions that are uncomfortable attaching the word common grace and they would say it's not common grace, it's providence, and that's fine. Providence is defined as God's holy, wise, and just uh, ruling and governing all of his creatures and all of, his, all of their actions. Uh, and, and so that's it's a synonymous concept, whether it's providence or common grace. Uh, clearly, uh, the Lord was extending uh, some measure, a uh, significant measure of mercy to civilization as a whole, under the lineage of Cain. Cain did not deserve to have a comfortable place to live. Cain did not deserve to have children that would advance civilization, but in fact, that's what happened. Uh, And by God's uh, bountiful provision, the line, and it's an ungodly line that came from Cain, uh, built quite a civilization. What you'll see, by the way, in verse 17, is that the child that was born of the union of Cain and his wife, the first name that's associated is Enoch. That's, and by the way, you'll find another Enoch in chapter 5. There are similar names. These are not the same people. You know, but I've got an appendix at the end of our notes that actually traces this, the similarity of names. But this is not the Enoch that walked with God and was no more. And he was translated without death. But this was the firstborn from the union of Cain and his wife. And while uh, Cain was governing his, uh, his son Enoch, he built a city, and he named the city uh, Enoch after his son. When you see the fact that Cain built a city, there's some features about that that we need to take note of. Number one, it was established contrary to God's will. God had dictated that Cain would be a vagabond, that he would be a wanderer, that he would be essentially a homeless man, that he would be always a man on the run. But God said, I will protect you and I will provide for you. Cain, as is typical of those who were outside of a relationship with God, took matters into his own hands and built a city as his way of preservation, as his way of defending himself. And so what he did in the city that he built was contrary to the will of God. He was unwilling to trust in God's provision. God's provision was, I will mark you, I will protect you. But Cain obviously did not respect that, did not regard that, rejected that. And so he built what in his mind was a protective city. Top of page two. What's interesting about the name of the city, and names in this chapter, and it's throughout the rest of scripture as well, are very important. It's easy for us to read these names and sort of miss the implications. But when he named his son Enoch, the name means dedicated. And the inference, the implication seems to be that Cain was forming his own line. He had already been rejected. He showed no remorse, but he essentially was saying, you're, you're dedicated. You will be the line through which my lineage will, be, will persevere. 
And so he clearly is taking things into his own hands by building a city, by naming a city after his son, and showing pride in his family achievements. Now, some of us may say, well, I'm proud of my family. And that's to be honored by what's happening in the lives of our children is, is fine. Uh, but to show the arrogance that Cain had in naming this city after his son is, is a significant thing. And you say, how, how do we realize that? Throughout the scripture, names of cities for the godly, you, you'll find names like Bethel, the house of God, Beersheba. Uh, you'll find a number of cities. They're named after the works of God because they always recognized what God was doing. And the, and the names of those cities would have biblical significance. Cain was simply naming the city after his son. And obviously he was saying, this is my future. And nowhere is God mentioned in this lineage of Cain and his descendants. It's not only the things that are said that's important to note, it's the things that are not said that we have to notice in Genesis 4. There's no mention whatsoever of God in the culture that Cain is building. And that shows up in the implications of that. And again, this is on page 2 because... In the scriptures, you'll find that those who are walking with God will name places after God himself because they're always attributing the success that they have, the favor that they're enjoying, the prosperity that they're enjoying to God. And there's no ascription whatsoever in the work that Cain was doing and in the lineage that he had, no reference whatsoever to God. It's, it is the ultimate secular society. The word secular, we use that term a lot. If you look up the word secular in any dictionary, what you'll find is it means without any religious connotation, without any religious doctrine whatsoever. It's worldly. Uh, it is a-religious. It is, it is independent of any religious conviction. That's essentially the world in which we live today. We live in a secular society. Some people applaud the fact that we live in a secular society. But a secular society has excluded God. A secular society is completely irrespective of respect for God. It is a godless, worldly culture. And that's the, that's the culture that Cain and his descendants ultimately built. And so you have in, in Genesis 4.18, you have the names of his descendants, uh, Irad, Mahujalal, uh, Methuselah and Lamech. And this last one in particular, Lamech, is, is a very significant feature uh, because what you'll see when you look at Lamech in verse 19 is the continuing degradation of society in the line of Cain. The first thing you notice is that he took to himself two wives. The implication of that is obvious. Genesis 2.24, the definition of covenant marriage is a man and a woman, not a man and multiple wives. And you'll say, well, but some of the men of God had multiple wives, and that's true. That was never, ever God's plan. Bigamy has never been God's plan. It's not something that God has ordained. It's entirely contrary to the will of God. But the first bigamist is Lamech, and he took two wives to himself. He took um, Adah and Zillah, and uh, so he became the first recorded instance of acting in direct uh, nature contrary to God's institution of, of, uh, of marriage itself. The names, I mentioned this earlier, and it, it may be subtle, but it's, it's important that we notice this. The names of his, um, his wives, Adah, means pleasure, ornament, or beauty. Uh, Zillah means shade, probably referring to uh, a luxurious covering of hair. 
daughter's name was Naamah, which means loveliness. And a culture, what you'll see there, and you may say, well, those are names that, that are very attractive. You, you won't find any moral connotation or, uh, at all to these things. It's 100% superficial. It's, 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 it's pleasure-oriented. It's exactly what our society is. It's focusing on externals, how someone looks, how attractive they are. On the contrary, uh, oftentimes Christian parents will name their children after things like faith and hope and love and, and Christian virtues as a way of attaching something that's more significant than just how they look. And, and that's, it's important that we attach names to something more than how we look or how we appear. Our culture is 100% superficial in nature and it focuses upon externalities, and that's exactly what these early names were. They were looking at it, it's something sensual, something beauty, and you really don't have to look very far in terms of the advertisements on TV or in the, in the news, whatever the case may be. Um, what are they focused on? This is how you can make yourself more attractive to someone and lure them into your life and keep them attracted to you, not because of the inner quality of your heart, but because they find you really attractive. That's essentially what was going on, and it, and it finds its roots exactly right here in the, in the lineage of, uh, of Cain, all externals. Top of page three. If you look at what it is that was gratifying to, um, to Cain and ultimately his, his lineage, it was the culture that had prospered under his sons. And when we talk about the advances in sophistication and various aspects of cultural advantage, that doesn't mean that technology per se or a cultural advantage or music per se is intrinsically bad. It's, it's neither intrinsically good nor intrinsically bad. It, it depends on what we do with it. It's the content. It's, 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 it, so the fact that technology prospers doesn't necessarily mean that it's godly. Do I have to give you examples of that? I mean, no. I mean, I think that's obvious. It doesn't mean that um, that sophistication in culture is necessarily godly. It's not. Uh, it can be. It's one of those elements that uh, depends on how it's used and the purposes for which it's developed. Uh, but we have some great advances that are taking place in Cain's lineage. Uh, you have, first of all, uh, Jabal, and he was the, the one who pioneered uh, people dwelling in tents and having livestock. Now, Abel had been one who kept the flock, uh, but here you have this series of nomads with various tents and civilization is prospering under his son, uh, some type of movable tent structures. Uh, secondly, his brother's name was Jubal, uh, and he was the one who uh, introduced uh, musical instruments, and musical instruments are wonderful, but it depends on how they're used and, and for what purpose they're designed. Music, per se, is amoral. Uh, the question is, what, what are you doing with it? And just to anticipate a little bit, the first poetry that you'll find in, in the scriptures is Lamech's sword song, as it's often called, and it's a sword song of vengeance and murder. And so the fact that you have a literary advancement, you have the introduction of poetry, doesn't mean it's godly. In the case of Lamech's, it was, it was wicked, and it was prideful, and it was pretentious, and it was evil but you have music introduced. Uh, and then you have a third one, Tubal Cain, the one who developed metallurgy, uh, instruments of bronze and iron. 
And, and so Kent Hughes makes a, a very helpful comment that godless Canaanite civilization birthed massive cultural advantages that have enriched all of life. That's true. Those advantages have helped. That doesn't mean that the pioneers of those cultural advantages were godly. They were not godly. But, but there is this element of common grace in the, in the development of civilization that takes place. But again, it's not necessarily what's said. It's also important what's not said. Do you find any mention here at all in this narrative of God? You don't find any mention whatsoever. You'll find that in other passages, and you'll find a, a stark contrast at the end of chapter 4 uh, with the introduction of Seth, and with the introduction of Seth, just to anticipate what comes at the end, at that point, men began to call on the name of the Lord. No one is calling on the name of the Lord here. There is none of that. It is 100% secular. It is, it is 100% humanistic. And so there is a problem uh, with this, this secular society, and that's in its very name. I mentioned this earlier, but the word secular means godless. It means worldly. It means completely washed free of any religious convictions whatsoever. We live in a pluralistic society, but we also live in a completely secular society. There is no endorsement of any religious points of view. And, and sometimes, people, this is an aside, but sometimes people say you can't have, there is this separation of church and state. You will not find that in our Constitution. That was based on a letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote. That the Constitution says that the government shall not establish a religion. And that's the Establishment Clause. And the reason it was written that way was because they came from England, and they didn't. in England they had the Church of England. They didn't want the government establishing a denomination. It's called this, but it doesn't mean, and it has never meant, the Constitution has never said that there should be separation of church and state. That's a secular imposition uh, upon our country. And, and it's obvious that you'll, you'll see that. That's just a, a freebie for you. But this, this secular society, it is completely worldly. No, no concern for the worship of God. You don't find any of that. You only find that at the very end of chapter 4. If you look at the beginning of chapter 4, you'll find uh, an interesting contrast, and it's like bookends at the beginning of chapter 4. Turn back in your scriptures and just look at chapter 4, uh, verse 1. Now, the man had relations with his wife Eve, obviously Adam, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I've gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. But Cain means gotten. She thought that she was bearing the one who would ultimately crush the head of the serpent in fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. Obviously not the case, and she soon realized that. And again, she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of the flock. So you've got this birth of Adam uh, Adam and Eve giving birth to Cain and, uh, and Abel. And then at the end of chapter 4, you've got Adam and Eve surfacing again uh, in verses 25 and 26. It's literally bookends at the end of at the, at this chapter, and they give birth to Seth. Seth is the one who would carry on the godly line because the godly line had been slain by, Cain, by Cain. So in between, you've got this worldly secular culture that, that we'll explore as we, as we get along. But no mention of God, a completely secular society. Matthew Henry, down at the bottom of page 3. Worldly things are the only things that carnal, wicked people set their hearts upon and are most ingenious and industrious about. Lamech was a father of shepherds and father of musicians, but not a father of the faithful. 
Here was one to teach in brass and iron, talking about Tubal-Cain, but none to teach the good knowledge of the Lord. Here were devices, how to be rich, how to be mighty, how to be merry, but nothing of God. That's a good description of what's taking place. Top of page four. If we look at the advances in civilization that took place with Cain's progeny, with the shepherd life, with the musicality, uh, with the introduction of metallurgy, uh, with increasing sophistication uh, along the way, it, it looks promising on the face of it. But the ugly internal core of all of this is revealed in verses 23 and 24. And here you have uh, the Song of Lamech, verses 23 and 24. Lamech said to his wives, plural, Adah and Zillah, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Let, let's unpack that a little bit. Here's the, the fruit of a secular society. It's vengeance, it's violence, it's vitriol, it's all of those things. There's nothing good, there's nothing redeeming about this culture. It shows the evil heart of man on full display. And so Lamech is bragging to his multiple wives about his prowess, about his strength, uh, about his ability to seek revenge upon others. Look at the contrast when you had Cain who murdered his brother. The Lord said, I will protect you and vengeance will be mine. No one is allowed to take your life. And here you have Lamech saying, I took someone's life because they wounded me. I murdered a boy because he hurt me. He's bragging about murder. He's bragging about vengeance. He's bragging about violence. And likely his, one of his son, Tubal-Cain, the metallurgist, had probably given him the device by which he ultimately took the lives of some of these other people. Um, but he's bragging about uh, all of this, and that's the essence of his mentality. Uh, there's a third paragraph. Amid the celebration of Lamech's sons, the father presents his own boast this seventh man in the life of Cain, one who summarizes its ethos, the wealth and strength acquired through advancing culture meant the power to impose his will on others through violence. David Guzik makes an insightful comment. He says, Lamech is bragging in proud and presumptuous self-confidence rather than having any sense of remorse. He's showing the heart of Cain. Cain had no remorse. Lamech has no remorse. There's no conscience that's alert to the will of God in their lives. There's no sensitivity to their guilt. They're boasting in their own wickedness. And what you'll see is a devolution, not an evolution. Sometimes you look at society as evolving. No, society is devolving. The implications of sin are everywhere to be seen, and it's not getting better. Nor will it get better through cultural advance, through technology, through music, through metallurgy, through any of the, de of the devices of man. Because the heart of man, apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, is corrupt. It's evil. It is set directly against the will of God. And you see the implications all around us. But Lamech is bragging about it. And so he's already gone astray from God's design for marriage by taking two wives. That was, that was never... 
uh, exemplified by any of his predecessors. That was something he simply decided to do. I'm going to take more than one wife. And so having usurped the will of God in terms of, of his design for marriage, he decides to corrupt uh, the culture uh, instead. And so you've got this, this song that he sings. It's literally the first example of poetry in the scripture, but it's, it's evil poetry. Top of page five. The, um, the second paragraph. What's interesting is in the bold language, while God threatened judgment in, his co- in the cause of protection, that was, that was the mark that he gave to Cain. I will protect you. I'm going to mark you. No one is to take your life. Your life belongs to me. I will execute judgment at such a time in such a way as I ordain, but no one is to execute vengeance on you. But what he does is he takes out his own vengeance on those who offended him, and he is taking lives and bragging about it, and violence is really taking the upper hand, and he's boasting about all of this. There's uh, in the center of the page, a fellow named uh, Henry Blocker says this, Lamech formulates a rule which the tribe will observe. The descendants of Lamech will think of vengeance in terms of duty. There's cultures in the world today that think that way, that vengeance is how you show your allegiance to your culture. Uh, and you, you, you literally, do you have to look at the Middle East to find an example? I mean, I, I think you, there would be a prime example. You look at the evil that's taking place with Hamas, they're, they're directly, the, the lineage, the cultural lineage that we're looking at here, it's vengeance, it's murder, it's hate, it's destruction. I'm not saying, I'm not saying Israel is, is scot-free. They're not. They're, they, they, their hearts need to be changed as well. But you look at October 7th and the aggressor was obvious. It was planned. It was, it was brutal. It was just devastating. That's, that's the devolution of society, and it started right here with Lamech. David Gusick makes a comment, this is all a representation of humanism, a man-centered perspective. The city was Cain's city. The focus of Lamech was his beautiful wives and his own perceived strength. But for all of Lamech's boasting, neither he nor his descendants are ever heard again in the Bible. He came absolutely to nothing. There's no, there's no legacy. He's got nothing. He, he, whatever he experienced in his life is in. Well, so that all that said, where is the, the bright light? Where is there hope in, in, in this story? And, and the answer really shows up in the last two verses of chapter 4. Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. Can you imagine a mother having to say that here's a, a son and he's taking the place of the one that, that his brother killed, slayed? What a statement. But she knew in naming Seth... That means appointed. That, the, 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 meaning, the name means, these names mean everything. The name means appointed. God had appointed a successor. What does that mean? That means that she had faith, that she knew that God's promises would not be extinguished just because of the vengeance of Cain against his brother Abel. That Cain would not have the upper hand in upsetting the redemptive plan of God. Cain could not possibly have derailed the redemptive plan of God by murdering Abel through whom, through whom the godly line would come. So we look at these circumstances, and, and if we all we, we had was the stopping here at, the, at, at verse 24, we'd say, where's the hope? The godly line was extinguished by murder by a godless man, Cain, who was 
hating God and took his hatred out on his brother, murdered him in cold blood. Where's the hope? Where's the, the bright shining light? There isn't any with Lamech. There isn't any with Cain. There isn't any with what we've just seen in chapter 4 in this secular society. There's no hope there. There's no redemption there whatsoever. If you want hope, and hope is given to us, the certainty that God's promises will be fulfilled, that redemption will be accomplished, that the head of the serpent will be crushed by the seed of the woman, it's literally in the last two verses of chapter 4. And she, uh, to Seth, uh, to him, a, a son was born and called his name Enosh, and men began to call upon the name of the Lord. So you've got, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. And then you have at the end of verse 26 that men began to call upon the name of the Lord. You don't find anyone calling on the name of the Lord in the line of Cain. And it's not there. It's all about civilization. It's all about cultural advancement. It's all about prowess. It's all about power. I don't know about you, but that seems to characterize the world in which you live. Power, you know, prowess, advantage, vengeance, violence. Uh, it, 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 we don't have to look very far and, and find that that's really characteristic of a secular society. But the hope is right here at the last, in, in top of page six. And as I mentioned, it, 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 this is really a historic moment uh, in, in verse 25, that Adam and Eve once again had a child on the way. A covenant marriage, a man and a woman, honoring God's design for marriage, fulfilling the purposes for which they, they were created. Eve gives birth to a son, and she names him appointed, because God has appointed a child to take the place of the one that was murdered. And she was going back to Genesis 3.15. They both were going back to Genesis 3.15. They both took God's word at face value. They both said, God has said, that in spite of my sin that, that, that brought all of the degradation into the world, in spite of my transgression against God in taking the fruit that I was never to touch and, and, and taking it in and violating the covenant of God and, and breaking his law and incurring sin not only upon themselves but upon every single descendant of themselves, that God was going to produce and would produce a deliverer, a redeemer, a messiah. That's all in Genesis 3.15, the first gospel. And, and, and Adam and Eve believed that. Their hopes were not extinguished with Cain murdering his brother. They knew that God would honor, and, and so they kept having relations. And, and ultimately, God honored that with the birth of Seth. And that's the one thing. And if you look at the lineage of the Messiah in the gospels, you'll find that it goes back through Seth. So this is the one that God ultimately would bring the Messiah through. It's interesting that when... Seth has a child, he names his son Enosh, and that means frail or feeble. Consider the contrast. Uh, you look at Lamech, what, what's the nature of Lamech? Lamech says, look at my power, look at my prowess, look at my violence, look at my vengeance. I took the life of someone simply because they wounded me. I took the life of a boy because he offended me. I murdered him in cold blood. What's happening even in the line of Seth is, is he realizes the fact that, that they, they need the strength of God, that we're frail, that we're feeble, that we need God's help, that we're not strong in ourselves, that by our own strength we won't prevail, by our own strength that, that the life of God will not be produced in us. 
that we're feeble, we're frail, we, we need God's help. And that's, that's essentially what is being recognized. And then at the end, in verse 26, this wonderful comment that is being made by Moses, then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. After this, this ugly spiral of sin and destruction that had taken place through the life of Cain, you have uh, what David Guzik describes as the first indication of spiritual resurgence after a clear decline. It's, it's a landmark change, men calling upon the name of the Lord. You can, you can look at that expression in Genesis 12, verse 8. You have a reference to, to, to Abraham calling upon the name of the Lord. And you can trace this expression. It's used frequently in Scripture that men and, and of God would call upon the name of the Lord. And when we say the name of the Lord, the name of God means all that he has revealed himself to be through his word and through his actions. And they were recognizing. So, when, when, for instance, when we say pray in Jesus' name, you don't have to use that expression. What, what is being said is you're praying on the merits of Christ, the name of Christ is who he is and what he has done. And we talk about the name of God. It's how he has revealed himself, the fullness of all of his attributes and all of his actions, all that he's revealed about himself. And so when you pray in Jesus' name, just as an aside, you're saying, you don't have to use that exact expression. You're simply, you're, what access do you have to God the Father? Through Jesus, his son. Because Jesus has paid the, the debt that you owe. Because Jesus has made it possible for you to be adopted as God's children. So when men call upon the name of the Lord, they're recognizing the God of the Bible for all that he is. And they're calling upon him in supplication. They're calling upon him in praise. They're calling upon him in sacrifice of worship. This is the first example of communal worship. When it says men began to call upon the name of the Lord, there is a clear implication that it's not just one that people are gathering, and they do gather after this occasion, to literally offer sacrifices to the God of the Bible. This was not happening until verses 25 and 26. The, the trajectory of civilization after Abel was murdered is all downward. And God in his mercy, and God in his perfect care, is preserving his promise. His purposes will never be, never be frustrated. And he said, I always have a remnant. I will never, my plans will always be, be fulfilled. I have a remnant, and I've, he creates that remnant through the, the, the loins of Adam and Eve as she gives birth to Seth. God's remnant is through that one man, Seth, and you can trace the lineage of Christ directly through that man, Seth. And he recognized that his dependence was upon God himself. So top of page 7. Just as an aside, you'll notice that whereas in the lineage of Cain, there is no mention whatsoever of God. All you have is a recitation of cultural advantage, of sophistication, of prowess, but no reference whatsoever to God. And here you have God's covenant name, Lord. It hasn't been in the text for a while, but here we have a resurgence of the, the covenant name of God, L-O-R-D, Yahweh. Jehovah, as your translations may have it, is the name that God ascribed to himself, his covenant name. It's the character that, of, of who he is and how he's made himself known. I made mention of this earlier, but this is the first example that we have of men calling upon the name of the Lord. Uh, but you have uh, Abraham uh, in Genesis 12, verse 8. You have Isaac 
in Genesis 26, verse 25. You have Moses in Exodus 34, verse 5. And you'll find men throughout the scripture calling upon the name of the Lord. And this is the lineage of Seth. This is the, the godly line through whom God would ultimately provide a redeemer. So then down at the very bottom of, uh, of page 7, in the last two verses, verse 25 and 26 of chapter 4, you have a, a small remnant that God has created, a community of faith calling upon the name of the Lord and bearing witness to the promise of a Redeemer. And Kent Hughes makes this comment, when Canaanite civilization began to rise and worship at the shrines of abundance and art and technology, when abuse and violence and the devaluation of life became commonplace, when men fancied that they were captains of their souls, off at the next page, Sephite civilization began to proclaim the name of the Lord, the captain of their salvation. So you have two civilizations, you have two cultures. You have a secular society and you have a godly line. The secular society has no promise. The secular society doesn't have any of the answers to the needs of man's soul. All the secular society is doing is fulfilling the aspirations and the inclinations of a depraved hearts of mankind in reliance upon themselves. That doesn't mean that there's not benefits that accrue from music, from technology, from civilization as a whole. There are. That's the common grace of God. The, even God uses even depraved man to advance the well-being of society as a whole. But the, the answer is not in, the, is in society. That's never been the case. The answer is not in government. The answer is not in the military. The answer is never, not in any of those institutions. The only answer is in God himself. And he provides the, the kingdom of God. And that, it's really what we're looking at here are two kingdoms, the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. In Cain, you had the kingdom of man, the city of man. In Seth, you had the kingdom of God, the city of God. And that's what Augustine was writing about in the city of God, two cultures, two futures. The future of a life of a civilization without God is only a downward spiral to destruction. The city of, uh, that is founded upon a faithful adherence to the character of God himself, worshiping him, calling upon his name, honoring him, there is absolutely every hope and, and every certainty of spiritual victory in that. And, and that's, that's the promise. And, and that we're called to be, as, as Paul says, just in, in wrapping us up, in Philippians 2, what are we called to be? We're called to be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. We are. This, this crooked and twisted generation is the secular society. And child of God, you're to be lights shining in the midst. And we do that through the, through the proclamation of the gospel. We do that through training up our children in the Word of God. We do that through public worship. We do that through calling upon the name of the Lord. We do all of those things. That's how we shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Can we redeem culture? Not ultimately. Can we be lights shining in the midst of a dark culture? Absolutely. That's not only an invitation, it's a mandate to live for God, to, to honor Him in all that we do, in the way that we raise our families, in the way that we conduct ourselves, in the way that we bear witness to, to the Lord Jesus Christ publicly and, and, and in relationships, that's how we shine as lights shining in the midst of a dark and perverse generation.
So the challenge is exactly that, to follow in the line of Seth. And, and ultimately, that's where the answer came, through the line of Seth. And God's purposes, I've said this before, but it bears repeating, God's promises are always fulfilled, never frustrated. It may appear on the face of things with the, the murder of Abel that the, the ship had sunk, but that is not true. Abel is in heaven, and, and Seth came along because God brought him into the world, and ultimately through Seth you have the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and therein is hope, and there is certainty.